Hi everyone, my name is Gates. And I'm Kelsey. And welcome to Killer Country. Right, we are back and we're just like on a recording roll today. Yes. <laughs> we're so, what three episodes in at this point. <laughs> yes, right now what we're trying to do since we are nearing our due date is we're just trying to get about two episodes in a recording session and we typically will record once a week. Yeah. So we are in Maine right now. We just recorded two different episodes for Louisiana, which I really hope you guys enjoyed. I had a fun time researching. I know you I probably did it. <laughs> I did until it got dark and then I was like, yeah but yeah so we're just trying to get things kind of set up just so you know once our kid once our kids get here we can kind of go on a maternity leave of sorts for maybe yeah. about three weeks or so yep just to figure life as a parent out yes <laughs> all right in maine so we are out on the east coast for a little while maine maryland massachusetts is coming up so yes um where are you taking us in maine I'm I already know you- I'm going first, so. Oh, okay. Well, I'm taking us to Portland, so. I'm taking us to Acadia. Ooh, yes, ma'am, you are first. Well, tell me more. Um, Acadia National Park, to be exact. Yeah. Um, the nearest city is actually Mount Desert, but the park is not in Mount Desert, so I'm going with Acadia as the name. Um, and we are on Mount Desert Island in Maine. Ooh. Yes. That sounds like a really cool place, but I don't know. No. It is. Okay. Uh, (laughs) It it is. It is. It it is a nice place. Um, I would really like to go. What happens there is a little bit sad. Um, Acadia National Park is 47,000 acres of wooded and rocky terrain that is actually one of the islands off that is like I said, Mount Desert Island is off the coast of Maine. Mm-hmm. So it's completely surrounded by the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, it got really Midwestern there. The ocean. ocean. <laughs> um, <laughs> there are actually granite mountains left behind from glaciers. Oh, um, wow. And the highest peak in on the East Coast is in this park, this national park. Um, there are also beaches and coastlines and freshwater lakes and ponds. All in one national park. That just sounds so beautiful. I know. The pictures are incredible. Um, There are more than a thousand plant species and it's home to a wide variety of wildlife, as we can imagine, since there are so many habitats there. Um, You can see moose, you can see bears, you can see whales and seabirds all in one trip. Holy cow. I know. I think it's so cool. Um, Acadia National Park is famous for its jaw-dropping views, especially in early to mid-fall when the leaves begin to change and the foliage is in full glory. Oh my gosh, I can imagine. I know, I know. (laughs) You have to look up pictures. (laughs) Um, There are 158 miles of hiking trails and three campgrounds, so it is an outdoor lover's dream. Acadia did not always look the way it does today. Obviously, plants grow, animals move around, things like time changes things, but Acadia was actually changed in a much more drastic way in 1947 when about 10,000 of the 47,000 acres in the park went up in flames due to a wildfire because of a drought that was happening that year. Oh my gosh. And again, now wildfires can be a good and a bad thing. Obviously they're very catastrophic, especially in areas like um, that are populated. So like, like the California wildfires are not, not a good thing. Um, but fire can actually be a very healthy thing for natural places. Um, mm-hmm. I know my family in Minnesota lives on some of the only native prairie left in the state. And one of the things that we're responsible for every couple of years, I think it's every five years, I want to say, um, is actually burning that prairie down um, to allow for new growth. So part of keeping the natural species there and like all of the um, 
there, there are different species of trees and plants that can kind of um, take over the natural prairie. So part of keeping that stuff tamed is actually burning it down so that um, the new stuff can grow through. So for Acadia, it took kind of an interesting turn. So this fire burned obviously a lot of the a lot of the trees that were there and majority of the trees that were burned were spruce and fir trees and the trees that grew back in their place were birch and aspen. So it completely changed the forest. I mean, you go from like a spruce fir forest looks very, very different than a birch aspen forest. So the forest itself looked completely different after that um, 10,000 acres burned up. According to the National Park Service in 2020, about 2.7 million people visited Acadia National Park. And that's during a pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, Um, I just looked at these pictures like, holy cow, I'd go too. I know. I put it on my list for Matthew and I. Like, I have to go. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1977, the numbers were almost identical. What? (laughs) Yes. So what, what is that? 47 years ago? Yeah. Um, to, the numbers were almost identical. 2.7 million people visited in 1977 as well. I mean, <laughs> actually, you know, there's probably not much of a difference. It, we were in the middle of a panini, so a lot of people were probably just trying to go relax, if you get what I'm talking about, and just yes. walk the forest. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure they were doing the exact same thing in the 70s. Nature hikes. If anyone knew me in college, you know what my nature hikes meant. What was I saying here? I don't know. So 2.7 million people visited Acadia in 2020 as well as 1977. So it's been a constant flow of people. That's a lot of people in a state park. Um, One of these visitors in 1977 was 27-year-old Leslie Spellman. I love her last name. I know. Um, Leslie was born in Massachusetts. You would love Leslie. Like she's just adorable. Um, she was born in Massachusetts on November 4th, 1949 to John and Betsy Spellman. She had one sister named Amy and they grew up in Hingham, Massachusetts. So, um, just outside of the Boston area. She still lived in that area as an adult and was absolutely living her best life. She was a yoga instructor, loved to travel. She had a dog, um, a little mutt, just a shaggy pup in all of the reports. Um, They describe him as a shaggy dog. (laughs) That's so precious. I know. Um, This weekend in June 1977 was not out of the ordinary for Leslie at all. She would have been about a five-hour drive from Hingham um, if she was going straight to Acadia, but she actually did not come straight from Hingham. She and her sister Amy were on a week-long backpacking trip together, and being in the middle of the sketchy 70s, they had been hitchhiking all of this this whole trip. Um, they were together, so, I mean, protection in numbers, but it's the 70s. Yeah, it's the 70s <laughs> in the woods. Who knows what's going to happen? Yes, I did, I did put a bullet point in here to remember that we are in the 70s, so this was hitchhiking was very, very common. Um, and especially for Amy, Amy and Leslie, like they were not new to this at all. Yeah. Um, a lot of their their adventures took place in this way. They would thumb rides to certain locations and then they would explore and then get a ride home. Um, so they were pretty smart about it. Um, not only did they travel together majority of the time, they also brought Leslie's dog that I mentioned as well as Amy's two huskies. So... Ooh. Not that, not that their do- their dogs were like super overly protective, but I feel like someone b- would be a little bit more hesitant to try to abduct somebody that has all of this connected to them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So this week long backpacking trip, they had hitchhiked all the way from Massachusetts to Bar, Vermont. Um, Bar was not any closer to Acadia, but it was where they wanted to end up because Amy was actually going to continue her trip on to New York City, and Leslie was going to split off and end up in Acadia National Park. So, leaving her only sister in Vermont, Leslie and her dog, Taylor, um, Mm -hmm. began hitching rides about six hours east to Acadia. This was on June 18th, 1977. 
Um, today, this time of year is bustling. Like June is the biggest time in Acadia because so many people are wanting to spend the 4th of July and around that time out in the area because it's so beautiful Mm -hmm. and the weather is perfect. And, um, it's just, if you plan on visiting, visiting Acadia in 2022 or later, um, if you're not wanting people, well, if you don't want people, then no, (laughs) but if you want to be there in the height of all the action, then yes. Um, in 1977, however, the town of Mount Desert only had a population of 600 people. Oh my gosh. Yes. So imagine that town of 600 people supporting 2.7 million visitors to that state park. Dude, they probably made a lot of money through tourism. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it, it was nothing like it is now, you know, it, it was not a touristy hotspot. Like the town was not equipped for tourists. Like it was just the people that lived there. Um, with that in mind, there was a very, very small police force. Um, they had I mean, <laughs> a, people. Yes. They had a civilian volunteer dispatcher named Ernest Coombs, who dispatched for both fire and police. Um, they had two police officers, Matthew Stewart and Chief Maitland Murphy, and a police sergeant, Tyrone Smith. That's it. That was their entire force. The whole thing. I know four of them. (laughs) Like just, just the four. I just imagine them like. I think of uh, Virgin River. Actually, (laughs) I haven't seen that, but I am kind of getting a little bit larger than Midnight Mass vibes. I haven't seen Midnight Mass. (laughs) If you don't like scary things, do not watch it. It is so good. (laughs) Um, The morning of Sunday, June nineteenth, nineteen seventy-seven, would rock this little police force and Mm -hmm. still cause heartache and confusion now almost 45 years later. At 9.45 a.m., dispatcher Ernest Coombs would be the one to answer this call, but not before he took another sip of his morning coffee, finished his article in the Sunday morning paper, and picked up that phone. I mean, because what is there to do? It's It's such a tiny Exactly. Exactly. Um, The call came from a phone booth just outside of the local fire station, and the caller was a man who was audibly upset. He was very, very shaken. Um, Ernest wasn't able to make out much of anything that the man was saying, but he did catch the main point of the call. The caller had found a body just outside Acadia National Park in Astaku Azalea Garden. The caller was Gordon Wheatman. And he would willingly cooperate with police from the very moment he made that call. And being it's such a small town, Ernest actually asked Gordon to come up to the police station so that they could talk in person. Um, He wanted to be sure that he was collecting accurate details. And he hoped that this would like calm Gordon down because he was, I mean, he was upset at what he had witnessed. He, um, and at this point, Ernest actually wasn't thinking it was the worst case scenario, you know, um, lots of things could lead to a body. So Gordon, his wife and two kids arrived to the police station, but only Gordon spoke to Ernest, his wife and kids stayed in the car. Um, Gordon did relay his story exactly as it had happened that morning, not only to Ernest, but also to the Boston globe for an article that was published later that year in July. Um, he and his family had planned to walk the Azalea garden that morning. So they drove from their home to the gravel lot used as a parking lot for the garden. And he said that they parked their car to the left of the main entrance as they usually did and headed in. Thankfully, Gordon and his wife led the way and their kids followed. And I remember being a kid, like we we went on a lot of hikes and camping trips and stuff like that when we were growing up. And we were always so excited. Like we would be halfway down the trail before my mommy had even locked the car, you know, like climbing on rocks, hanging off of the the fence or climbing, whatever, checking out the map. I mean, we were not by the car. So maybe we were just brats and the Wheatman kids were like really well behaved. Very well behaved. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that would not have been the case if it were my family on this trip. Um, And the reason why I say it was a, thankful thing um is because only about 25 feet into the garden gordon his wife spotted the body lying face down only a little bit off of the main path oh my gosh they actually thought it was a body of a man um they didn't get close enough to they didn't turn the body they did not touch anything they saw it 
they saw that there was blood on the person and they knew that that person was not alive. So they immediately turned the kids around and hurried them back to the car. They loaded them back up into the car and drove directly to the payphone at the fire station where Gordon made that call to Ernest. After hearing Gordon's recount of that morning and taking detailed notes, Ernest called Sergeant Smith, um, remember, one of only three police officers, <laughs> and I'm giving an award to Sar Sergeant Smith for fastest response time ever because it took him less than five minutes from the time he received the call to arrive on the scene. Yeah, I think down in our Arkansas case, whenever I did Alma, it was six minutes. Yeah. So and he's winning so far. I actually, um, the only reason I want to bring this up is because I just did, um, renewed my CPR license and this was some, one of the things that the instructor talked to us about. So in Huntsville, Alabama in 2022, the average response time in city. So within city limits is eight to 12 minutes, which doesn't seem like it's very long, but it's also pretty long. I mean, 12 minutes is a long time if you're in yeah. an emergency. In Madison County, so outside of city limits, it can be up to 25 minutes. And in rural parts of the area like Harvest, Hazel Green, and parts of Limestone County, the response time is closer to 45 minutes. Oh. So just think, like, if you <laughs> witness something, you are having to, God forbid, do CPR on someone, 45 minutes? That's ridiculous. That like, sounds about right. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So just something to keep in mind, <laughs> Huntsville listeners. Yeah. Um, Sergeant Smith radioed back to Ernest confirming what they had all feared, uh, that this was, in fact, a homicide. Mm -hmm. Like I started to tell you a little bit about um, earlier, Ernest actually went on record saying that when Gordon had first told him what they had seen, he did not believe it was homicide. He thought it, you know, an unaccompanied death, an accident, suicide, um, because they did not have homicides in that area. It's the age old, well, that doesn't happen here yeah. kind of thing. Um, in this case, he wasn't wrong. Like stuff like this truly did not happen in Mount Desert. The only other recorded homicide in the area happened 188 years earlier. Oh, my and, God. Yes. In 1789, before Maine was even a state. Wow. Uh, interesting fact about that murder from 1789. The murderer was executed by hanging and buried in the area. And descendants, I know, <laughs> descendants of both the murderer and the victim still live in the area today. Oh, my gosh. I know. Isn't that crazy? Fun yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would not. If one of my family members was murdered, I would move away. Mm -hmm, probably. Yeah. Um, the Mount Desert Police obviously needed backup for this investigation, and in less than 30 minutes from Gordon's initial phone call, Maine State Police had arrived on scene as well. Investigators confirmed that the body was of a woman, not a man like the Wheatmans had initially thought. She was wearing a maroon vest with a beige sweater. From her waist down, she was only wearing underwear, no shoes or pants, and they believed the woman had been dead for only a few hours at this point, and... Um, the autopsy would confirm this later on, but her time of death was actually noted between 6 and 6.30 a.m. So rigor mortis sets in gradually at around two hours. So she, she was likely not even in full rigor before the Wheatmans found her at nine, not, around 9 o'clock that morning. Um, it was obvious that she had been bludgeoned to death with a blunt weapon. Her autopsy confirmed, one, the time of death, um, two, that she had multiple scalp lacerations, fractures to the skull, and a broken upper jaw. Oh, my gosh. Did she put up a fight? Yes. It was also confirmed that there was no alcohol or drugs in her system, and there was no evidence of sexual assault. However, with her being in her undies and her pants and shoes missing, police did not rule out sex as a motive for the for her death. Um, but it was confirmed she had not been sexually assaulted, but that doesn't mean that the killer was not did not kill her because she wouldn't. Um, the way the body was positioned off the path led investigators to believe that the woman had been running away from her attacker and that she had likely tried very hard to defend herself. There were defensive wounds. The area looked disheveled. Um, they did confirm that where her body lied is where she was killed. She was not dumped there. 
The woman went unidentified for quite a while after her body had been found, so eventually they recruited the help of the Boston Globe to get her sketch shared with a wider population. Um, They also included a description of her clothes and jewelry. I guess the jewelry she was wearing was pretty unique. Uh, She had a serpent bracelet, a tiger's eye ring, and and some wooden bangles. Um, They also did a, they did get a slight lead when they were able to trace the maroon vest she was wearing to a sporting goods store in Boston. And one of the clerks was actually um, able to remember selling it to the woman in the police sketch and said that he had also sold her some camping equipment. But the clerk made the comment that she seemed new to camping, not, not like she was a seasoned camper. Um, while following up on that lead, the Boston Globe ended up on the doorstep of Betsy Spellman. Oh. Yes. After reading the description and seeing the police sketch, Betsy knew immediately that it was her daughter, Leslie. On June 26, 1977, police confirmed that it was indeed Leslie through dental records. A witness came forward stating that around 6.15 a.m., um, remember, Leslie was traveling by hitchhiking with her dog, Taylor. So around 6, this witness came forward and said around 6.15 on the morning of June 19th, they saw a dog wearing a red bandana being tossed out of a car down the road from the Azalea Garden. Please tell me that dog is okay. I'm going to tell you. Um, They said the dog ran off the road and they were not able to catch the license plate, nor did they get a good description of the car. Another witness came forward who was a gas station clerk um, from a nearby station who came forward and said that he recalled seeing a rusty, dark colored vehicle pull up for gas. Um, They only put $3 in and Gates gas was 62 cents in 1977. (laughs) Because I knew you would wonder. <laughs> I always wonder. Um, and he, so he put $3 in before driving away. But what was interesting about the clerk's memory was that he distinctly remembered the driver of the car being a man. And in the passenger seat was a woman with a dog sitting on her lap. And the dog wore a red bandana. Mm-hmm. Shortly after Leslie's body was identified, Amy arrived to Mount Desert to take custody of Taylor, who had been found just down the road from the Azalea Garden. Um, in the report, they they said he was wandering, um, visibly confused. So he just was lost. Um, and they confirmed that it was the same dog that the two witness accounts had seen. Um, he was mostly unharmed. He did have a hurt shoulder, um, but other than that, just some bumps and bruises. So they think, you know, the shoulder got hurt from being tossed out of the car. Mm-hmm. The witness accounts gave police more of a timeline to Leslie's activities before her death. Uh, they believed she arrived to the area around 10 p.m. the night of Saturday, June 18th. And police searched practically the whole island um, looking for a location where Leslie may have set up camp. Her sister Amy said that she was not the type to go to a campground and and pick out a spot or pay for a spot. She would be much more likely to just find somewhere that looked good and put up her tent. Um, So they hoped that they would be able to find this and recover some of her personal items, especially a journal that she took with her everywhere. um, Because she was also record a lot of the people she met through hitchhiking so not necessarily people she didn't like but you know you you meet people Uh, Mm -hmm. hitchhiking wasn't all bad it wasn't all creeps and um murderers but i'm sure so i'm sure she met plenty of people she wanted to either stay in touch with or remember down the road but they actually never found anything belonging to her they did not find her camping gear they did not find any of her packs her nothing just her shoes nothing Oh, my gosh. Where? I know. Um, There was no evidence whatsoever on who could have murdered her. With the case going cold, there were quite a few theories hitting the media at this point. Um, Leslie's case has been considered by authorities in two separate serial, serial killer investigations. And in a theory with a little bit more meat on it, um, they thought she could be connected to a murderer named Lauren Aquin. So in July 1977, which was that same year, just a month later, um, Aquin actually entered the Connecticut home of a woman named Cheryl Bowden. He then bludgeoned Cheryl, her seven kids, and her niece before he burned the home down. Oh, my gosh. I know. (laughs) I know. 
Um, there were a few similarities in this case, mainly revolving around Leslie's dog, Taylor. So successful use of DNA was still not quite a thing um, in 1977. Unfortunately, I so wish it was because I feel like it would have been open and closed. But um, they did find dog hair in Aquin's vehicle that was quote unquote compatible with Taylor's hair color, texture, and chemical composition. So unfortunately, DNA not being a thing. They were not able to ever confirm that link. Man. I know. Another similarity is that in Leslie's case, the killer didn't hurt Taylor. Um, he pushed him out of the car. I mean, sure, he got a bum shoulder, but the intent was not to harm Taylor, you know? Mm -hmm. And in the Bowden family murders, Aquin, the, the murderer, um, did not hurt the family dog. He let it outside, and it was completely unharmed. Wow. So he literally brutally bludgeoned eight nine people and didn't hurt the dog. So it's just things like that, like all throughout the two cases that they're like, Hmm, but there's really no way to confirm or deny that they were connected. Um, the murder weapon in Leslie's case was found from her, um, not far from her body, but they have never released to the public the exact description of what that weapon was. So, so we literally don't know if it's a knife, axe, bat. Baton. Well, the police do. Police have it. Um, it was covered in her blood. It was confirmed to be her murder weapon. Um, but they haven't released it because it's the only piece of evidence they have. So it's the one thing that they can keep out of the media to hopefully one day be able to connect a killer to. Wow. Um it was confirmed to be the same type of weapon used in the Bowden case. Okay. I, I'm on, <laughs> I am on that conspiracy. I 100% yes. agree with it. So that's, that's a big one. There's another one. Um, the description from the gas station clerk of the man that was with Leslie that night when they saw them with in the car with the dog on her lap, um, the description was very similar to Aquin, Lauren Aquin, the person who murdered the Bowdens. And Aquin could not account for his whereabouts between June 17th and June 20th of 1977. So it's looking very good. I'm just saying. Yeah, I agree with that. Aquin was sentenced to life in prison for the Bowden murders, but no connection could ever be confirmed for Leslie's murder. Oh. I know. In 2000, a serial killer named James Hicks was arrested for his crimes, and it was so eerie that this happened today. So I like to save my morbid episodes until, like, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so that I can listen to them when I'm get, getting housework done. Uh -huh. And the most recent episode that they posted is part one of serial killer James Hicks. Oh, my God. And I literally did not even know that until I pulled it up today. I was like, wait, James Hicks? James Hicks. <laughs> Same person. Yes. So I haven't listened to their episode yet. So maybe they'll have more information than I'm about to give you. So I, I'm not morbid. So sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so James Hicks murdered his wife in Maine in 1977 and would then confess to two more murders in Maine in the early 80s and early 90s. His timeline and M.O. was very similar to the way Leslie was killed. Hicks was known to frequent the area on Mount Desert Island. He was known to bludgeon his victims. Um, and a lot of the scene and everything was very similar to the other three murders he would commit later on. What were they murdered with? Can we, can we pretend that that was this? No, <laughs> I did not go into detail on James Hicks. I just covered his other victims. So go listen. I'm going to plug morbid. I don't know yeah. if they appreciate that or not, but go listen to the part one of morbid. <laughs> yeah. Ash and Elena. I love you. Uh, me too. <laughs> Um, still though, there was no way to connect him to Leslie's murder. Um, so that was just a dead end lead. Mm -hmm. Amy's sister said that she did not want her sister to come across as a crazy hippie, um, which a lot of people associated hitchhikers with. There was actually a report done by a college on the East coast. I'm not going to name any names, but, um, it actually, <laughs> the whole report was how, it was basically a victim blaming report. Um, the whole report was how if you are a woman who hitchhikes, you basically ask to be sexually assaulted. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. So with that out and the media, of course, was all over, like the fact that she was a hitchhiker and she hitchhiked to Acadia. um, That was one of the most important things that Amy has tried to get out there that her sister was not like that was not her sister. Um, And it was not her fault at all just because she was hitchhiking to Acadia National Park. Um, She said that her sister was, quote, precious, highly motivated and determined. Unfortunately, Leslie's is not the only death to occur in Acadia National Park. There have been 78 recorded deaths in the National Park since it became a national park in the early 1900s. Many of these accidents are falls or accidental things, you know, mm-hmm. not bad, um, including a couple that just within like the past few years of this, um, I listened to a podcast episode about this case as well. Um they decided that the marked climbing route. So if you're not a national park enthusiast, there are going to be marked hiking paths, trails. Um, if you're a climber, there's going to be marked routes that you take and you stay on those because they're marked for a reason. They're safe. Yeah. Um, now there's all different challenges, but this one and this couple in particular felt that the path that they were on was not challenging enough. So they decided to go off the path and free climb that means no ropes just fingers and toes no ropes yeah um so they lost their footing and fell about 100 feet to their death well yeah yeah oh my god there was another couple just last year 2021 who was i think they were on a marked path but they were climbing on ice cap rocks Um, Because it's a mountain. I mean, it's a whole mountain. Um, Mm. And they lost their footing and also fell to their deaths. So accidents happen. I mean, they they really do. Um, Unfortunately, they're not the only cause of death in Acadia Park, though. Just like Leslie, two other people have met a more sinister fate in Acadia National Park. Mark Reed was shot and killed on Thanksgiving in 1982. October 11th, 1987, Kathy Frost Larson was thrown from Otter Cliffs in Acadia by her newlywed husband, Dennis. The couple had only met seven weeks before, but Kathy, everyone who knew her said she was so anxious to settle down and they had only been married for about four weeks when he threw her over the cliff. Oh my gosh. His previous wife had also died um, mysteriously as well. Okay, so. I think I've heard about that. I think there's a documentary on Hulu or something that one of my girlfriends was trying to get me to watch. I know. I didn't want to put too much in there because I'm like, that might be a good one to cover next time we hit Maine. Um, so yeah. uh, it's so unfortunate. Like, I love places like this. I love national parks. Um, I love the outdoors. Mm-hmm. So it's so unfortunate, like these beautiful places like Acadia or Glacier National Park or even um, – this great smoky mountains park just near us can be scenes of such terrible crimes or accidents or, you know, self-inflicted wounds, things like that. Um, but it's just proof that you have to be aware everywhere you go. Even if like, even if you've been there a hundred times, even if you've go, you're going for a good time, you're going for enjoyment. Those are going to be the times that you are not on guard, that you're not thinking about these awful things that can happen to you. Um, so no matter how many times you've done it, how much experience you have, you're never going to be equipped to handle someone's dark intentions ever. No. And I mean, not even just like the dark intentions, but just like hiking itself. Like I had a girlfriend um, back home that I went to school with. She was hiking. I don't know where. And she ended up falling down a ravine and breaking her leg. The only reason she survived was because there was someone else with her that was able to call for help. She was down there for over 45 minutes waiting for them to get to her. Oh, that's just eerie to me. So, I mean, always make sure you go with someone. Always make sure you're paying attention. Like, just like uh, Morbid says, fresh air is for dead people. Like, <laughs> yeah, you need to be on your extra A game if you're going out hiking or anything. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it can change so quickly, especially like from what it, I've never been to Acadia National Park, but just the vast difference between ocean and the highest peak on the east coast i mean those temperatures can be vastly different yeah so just being prepared and 
Nobody meet an untimely death in Acadia before I go there or after. Please. Yeah, just no one, no one go there. No, Let us go there. We'll be the yeah. only one to go there. <laughs> so that is the story of Leslie. It is still unsolved. Um, like I said, almost forty five years later, there's no, there's no direction on that case whatsoever. So, hopefully, though, they're able to keep that information about the weapon close to close to the chest, and one day it lead to more. Yeah, more in it getting solved. Yeah. Where are you taking us in Maine? I'm taking us to Portland, Maine. Oh, yeah, I already asked you that. I just forgot to write it down. <laughs> so whenever I was doing the case, it kept saying Portland. And the only Portland that I know of or that, like, I think of. Oregon. Yeah, is Oregon. So my fun fact for you guys is that Portland, Oregon was named after Portland, Maine. Like, oh, it was named- I know, like, obviously it was named after Maine because Maine became a state first, but... Was it settlers of Portland, Maine that settled in Portland, Oregon? I don't think so. I just saw that it was named because of Portland, Maine. Hmm. Now, the word Portland comes from the old English word Portlanda, which means land surrounding a harbor. So, and both Portland, Maine and Portland, Oregon are very good examples of that. Absolutely. The greater Portland area is known as an important center for the creative economy. And it's also bringing gentrification to the area. Now, gentrification is one of those things that it can be seen as a good and a bad thing. One of the bad things being like it's kicking people out of their homes. They can't afford to live in that area anymore. But a good thing, meaning it brings new jobs and everything to the area. So Portland, Maine is the largest city in Maine. And my favorite part, fun fact, is the fact that the city still depicts a phoenix rising from the ashes, which refers to the recovery from four devastating fires in the area. Wow. And it's my favorite fun fact because I have like a big ass tattoo of a phoenix <laughs> on my arm. But it was founded on the best day of the year, before it was the best day of the year, um, July 4th, 1786. And fun fact, one of the anniversaries slash independence days that was celebrated led to one of those fires. And in 1980, whenever this case takes place, the population was 33,810 people. And it has almost doubled in that time since then. So the current population is 66,595 people. Wow. So it's definitely boomed a lot. Yeah. So we are going to start talking about John Joseph Jubert the fourth. John Jacob. Yeah, that is exactly His name what is my name too. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean it so with our son, we're wanting to do like um the same letter in his first and his middle name. Mm-hmm. And of course, now we're looking at different middle names because Nick just can't make up his mind. I but <laughs> yeah, tell your husband, I'm sorry. Okay. So John Joseph Jubert the fourth, he was born on July 2nd, 1963 in Lawrence, Massachusetts. He did have a very difficult childhood. According to reports, he was very, very intelligent. He had an IQ of 123 Basically meaning that if he was in a room with 100 people, there would only be nine people in that room that were smarter than him. Wow. Yeah. So he was very intelligent. And he, uh, one thing that kind of attributed to his difficult childhood was that he witnessed his own father attempt to strangle his mother when he was younger. So obviously things were not great at home. And because of that, his parents got divorced when he was six And with that, his mother, he had to live with his mom. She was either moving him from one school to another or one state to another. Eventually, though, they ended up in Portland, Maine. Now, uh, his mother did tell him that he was not allowed to visit his father, mainly, I'm guessing, because of the domestic violence. And for some reason, that didn't click for him. And so he grew to hate and resent his mother because of how controlling she was. She was just protecting you. Yeah, she was trying to protect you, my dude. Hmm. No, John was always the new kid. He was always an outcast, and he was desperate for friends. 
It said during this time he started wondering what it would be like to murder and cannibalize people. What? Oh my god. <laughs> that escalated so quickly. Yeah. Ah. I'm guessing because of the high IQ and the lack of friends. I that, that doesn't mean you eat people. But if you eat people, they'll stay with you, at least for a while. Oh no. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I promise I don't eat my friends. You were just telling me you don't have many friends in Huntsville. That's why. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. Um, He did have a babysitter in his younger years. Okay. Um, he did have a babysitter in his younger years, and reports do say that when he was younger, he spent a lot of his free time thinking about choking his babysitter uh, to death and eating her flesh. What the fuck? Okay, if he's young enough to need a babysitter, I, 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 I don't know. I don't understand. I obviously there's something going on with this child. Yeah. And um, for work, he was a paper boy in the area. So uh, he did that in his younger years. And to try to meet new people and make friends, he joined the Boy Scouts. No, that's not good. Give him the tools to carve people. Yeah. Unfortunately, all that did was lead to feelings of inferiority and low self-esteem. Great. So as a teenager, he was described by people as quite the bully. When he was 16 years old, he stabbed a six-year-old girl with a pencil. And it was at that time that he felt sexual gratification, and it made him repeat this multiple times throughout his life. For stabbing someone. He got sexual gratification from it. Oh, Now, the next day, after he stabbed the six-year-old girl with a pencil, he was out riding his bike, and he passed another girl. And this time, he decided, while he was driving past her, he was just going to get a razor blade out and just cut her. It's just like a drive-by cutting. Oh, my God. Now, similar attacks started happening in areas all over Portland, including an incident where, obviously, we know that it was John, but uh, he beat and nearly strangled another young boy, but the assailant was never caught for any of these attacks. And um, this led to him, this, these feelings led him to start wondering like what it would be like to hurt more helpless people and what it would be like to sexually assault people. And for him, the act of like penetrating them with like a knife or a, a, a pencil, a box cutter, whatever, that was like his way of penetrating them. Like in none of the cases, is there any type of sexual assault, even though that's what he started thinking about at that time. Ew. Soon after he began stabbing innocent children, he would later graduate to murder. When he was 19 years old, he committed his first murder. 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 His first murder. (laughs) So uh, he committed his first murder, and that was on August 22nd, 1982. He snatched a young boy, Richard Stinson. He was 11 years old at the time from, I feel like it's Black Cove, but I wrote Back Cove. I'm pretty sure it's Black Cove. It was a local jogging trail in the area. So he stripped the boy down before stabbing him in the chest, strangling him, and biting him. When uh, Richard, when little Ricky hadn't returned home by dark, his parents immediately called the police to report him missing. Just because, you know, back in, like we know, born in the 90s, (laughs) back in the 80s, if like your, your time home was the like sun going down. I know growing up in Alma, my time home was whenever the lights came on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Richard was found the next day by a motorist driving along a rural highway. 
It was initially believed that he was the victim of a hit and run, but the autopsy did show that he was strangled, then stabbed several times in the chest, as well as the several bite marks that we had discussed along his body that were inflicted by human teeth. And they were able to tell like it was human teeth, not animal activity or anything like that. Gross. With everything that the autopsy did show, thankfully there were no signs of sexual molestation. So the only penetrating marks that he had were those from that knife. Mm -hmm. The police searched for any leads, but because it was 1982 and they didn't have all the advancements that we have now, therefore no solid evidence, the case went cold. So after graduating from high school, John joined the Air Force and was stationed in Nebraska. Now I interviewed my husband about the Air Force. (laughs) (laughs) And um, just because, you know, John was so incredibly intelligent. I asked my husband, I was like, hey, you know, uh, because let me just say, you know, he was in the Air Force as a radar technician at the OFID Air Force Base in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. So I asked Nick, Uh, I told him like the job description and I was like, do you need to have any special training for this? And he basically said no. And we can get into that in a minute, Mm -hmm. but I want to tell you guys what his job was. So according to uh, airforce.com, his job meant that he was responsible for air traffic and warning radar systems, fixed and deployable navigational aids, weather equipment and radios, radar, airfield and weather systems, all right, that was a period. So weather system specialists ensure that the equipment utilized by air traffic controllers and pilots is perfect in perfect working order. These specialists install and maintain everything from air traffic control and weather equipment to ground control and navigational aids to ensure aircraft, the aircraft can be safely guided through takeoff and landing. So I talked to Nick about what a radar technician is because he does have a high IQ and He said there really isn't anything like super special about that job, uh, meaning that it's not like one of their special warfare jobs. Right. He said that you just, you wouldn't necessarily need that above average IQ for. And my husband was a TACP, meaning a tactical air control party specialist. And he joked that even though his job wasn't special warfare, (laughs) all he needed for his job was to be strong. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, he was like, let me put it to you this way. There are a hundred points that you can get on the ASVAB. Mm-hmm. I only needed 49. Oh, wow. So I, I was like. <laughs> I forget what I got on my ASVAB. I have no idea what I got. But, uh, and I did a little bit of research just because I was like, you know, I'm going to quote my husband as saying something to join like the TACP. Mm-hmm. But he joined in 2013 and things have changed a lot since then. So instead of there being two steps, there are now six steps. And then there's like this crazy workout plan that you need to be able to do. Mm -hmm. So things have changed a lot since 2013. So I can only imagine how much they've changed since 1982. Sure. Nick did mention that there's a special operations weather team, Airmen, also known as a SOUT, S-O-W-T-S. That would be the special warfare version of the radar technician. Oh, okay. So like the higher level of what John was doing. Mm-hmm. But you. he didn't want to That's do That's not that. what he was doing. Yeah. Gotcha. But um, back in 2019, the mission changed for them. So I'm sure it still would have been the same when it existed back in the 1980s. But for some reason, even though he was so intelligent, he just didn't have that drive to do something a little bit more. Now, less than a year after being stationed in Bellevue, Nebraska, and after the murder of Little Richard, John would murder his next victim. This would be on September 18th, 1983. And what happened was the residents of Bellevue started to complain that their Sunday Omaha World Herald papers didn't appear on their doorstep like they usually did in the morning. And it was especially odd because this was the Sunrise Edition. I've never delivered papers anywhere, but I'm assuming the sunrise edition is going to be something that you get before the sun rose. That makes sense. It it makes sense to me. Yeah. (laughs) Now everyone complained, uh, or everyone that did complain was on 13 year old Danny Joe Herbal's route. Even though people were complaining that their papers weren't delivered, 
He had woken up bright and early for his job as the paper boy, but he vanished into thin air after only delivering to the first three houses along his daily route. On a normal day, he would deliver to about 70 people. Oh, wow. So, so that's he, a lot of people who noticed. Yes. And he did not get far. And that's why whenever everyone started to complain, they were like, okay, something is wrong. Where is little Danny? Right. Immediately, his father, Leonard, started searching for him. And unfortunately, it was his father who found his abandoned bicycle with the remaining 67 papers in it. Hmm. His bicycle was found inside the gate at the the fourth house on his paper route. And Leonard told reporters he was proud of that bike. And he said that there was no way that he would have left it, at least not willingly. Right. His brother, Danny's brother, also was a paper boy. And he said that he had not recently seen Danny, but he did remember him being followed by a white man in a tan car in previous days. Unfortunately, within three days, the police found Danny's partially clothed remains. His wrists and ankles were bound by a rope, and he was dumped in the woods near the Offutt Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. Autopsy reports showed that there was, once again, no sign of sexual assault, but he did have eight stab wounds and human bite bite marks the bite marks get me oh yeah so sick i cannot i like (laughs) i know (laughs) like i think about it i'm like oh my god like just the thought of like biting into someone else no i don't like it i'm gonna get nauseous (laughs) (laughs) I get nauseous at the, like, stupidest things nowadays. It's ridiculous. So uh, the the hunt for this murderer was the most intense that the region had ever seen at the time. Police started their investigation with all known sex offenders and pedophiles and brought them in for questioning, though quickly all of them were ruled out. They even brought in a hypnotist to try to help potential witnesses recall repressed memories. And they were actually able to get composite sketches from witnesses' memories from that morning. Hmm. And then a local Bellevue bank announced that they would be offering a $40,000 reward on any information leading to Danny's killer's arrest. Wow. Because of what happened, the FBI joined in the search because Danny was abducted before his murder, therefore making it a federal crime. Now, I'm not sure if that's still the requirement, just because this was the 80s. An FBI profiler named Robert Ressler said that the killer was likely a white young man and was sexually fluid. So I'm not sure how they got all of that out. I'm assuming white because both or the victim was white at that point. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you don't cross um, color lines. Um, if it was sexually motivated, he might have crossed the sexual line. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I'm not a profile. I just watch a lot of uh, <laughs> criminal lines. Uh, there were several leads at this point, And there was even a young man that was arrested for molesting two young boys the week after Danny's murder. But he did fail a polygraph test. And he even had a fake alibi. But because he did not fit the profile that the FBI had created for the murderer, he was released for lack of evidence. And uh, this case ended up going cold pretty quickly due to the fact that very little evidence was left at the scene. Mm -hmm. Less than three months later, on December 2nd, a 12-year-old boy named Christopher Paul Walden disappeared after he left his house to walk to school. His disappearance was within three miles of where Danny was found murdered. He was the son of an Air Force officer at the Offutt Air Force Base. And once again, witnesses said that they had seen a white man in a tan car before he was taken. Pheasant hunters found his body hidden in a grove of trees outside of town two days later on December 5th with his throat slashed and body mutilated. So this is a little bit different than what we're used to. Yeah. But there were still bite marks. So they had just kind of grouped them together. And at that point, whenever his body was found, the FBI spokesperson at the time, his name was Chuck Wiley. He said, the thing we all dreaded has occurred. 
We have witnesses from the morning of the abduction. They said it occurred on a street while he was going to school. One of the witnesses said that the suspect may have had something in his hand. Now, even though this was December, there were no big breaks in the case until the next month on January 11th, 1984, when a church nursery school director noticed that what she thought was a suspicious looking car hanging out near the school. So because she was suspicious, she did what a lot of people would do, and she wrote down his license plate number. But the thing is, he noticed her writing down the license plate number, and he attacked her. Ah. And uh, she said that he kept screaming at her uh, that he was going to kill her. Now, luckily, she was able to get away, and um, she immediately reported the incident to the police. And thankfully, she still had the numbers from the attacker's license plate number. The police did a search on the car, and it turns out that it was a rental being used by Air Force radar technician John Jubert, who was 20 at the time and stationed at the nearby Air Force base. Now, he is in a rental because it turns out his tan Nova sedan, so his Mm -hmm. little tan car, was -hmm. being repaired, so he was using a rental at the time. And he was not, like, at all, like, even on police, the police or the FBI's radar. But as soon as he was brought in, the FBI said not only did he fit the profile that the FBI had given, but he also resembled the sketches that the witnesses were able to provide to the police. After arresting John and not only going through his barracks, but also his car, They found an unusual type of rope. It contained about 100 different fibers, and that was in his belongings. So, and this rope was also in his rental car, as well as a hunting knife. The rope that they found was manufactured in South Korea, and it was hardly used in the U.S. at all. Like, it was a military-grade issued rope. It also matched the rope that was used to bind up little Danny. When they interviewed John and brought up the rope that they had found, he immediately confessed. He said that he had approached Danny, drew out his knife, and covered, and remember, Danny is the paper boy. So Mm -hmm. while Danny was on his paper route, he approached Danny, he took out his knife, and with his other hand, he uh, put his hand over Danny's mouth, and he told Danny to follow him. He took him back to his little tan car. And uh, he drove him to a gravel road outside of town. For little Christopher's murder, he was the one that was walking to school. Mm-hmm. John said that he had driven up to him as he was walking to school, showed him his little knife, his little knife. It's, it's a big knife. It's a hunting knife. <laughs> but uh, he showed him his knife and told him, get in the car. After driving for a bit, he found a secluded place. He ordered Christopher to strip down to his underwear, which Christopher did. And then he ordered Christopher to lie down and Christopher refused. He said after a brief struggle, he ended up overpowering Christopher and then he stabbed him. He was so upset that he slit uh, Christopher's throat so deep that he almost decapitated him. Oh my gosh. And it was at this time that he told the police that he was glad that they had caught him because he was positive that he would kill again. Yeah, me too, buddy. Yeah, I'm positive you would kill again. I mean, this is, I mean, it's not a spree, but it basically is a spree, like three murders in a year. And during his confession, he was asked by a detective if he would kill again if he got released from jail. And his reply was, that's my big worry. It's scaring me quite a bit. Yeah. So don't let him out. He should be in there. He should stay forever and ever until he takes his last breath. Yes. And then maybe even a little bit longer. Yeah, just in case. So he was held at the jail until his trial on a $10 million bond pending his trial, which is a lot. That is a lot. Now, despite several evaluations being done with John suggesting that he was um, suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder, sadistic tendencies, and that he suffered from schizoid personality disorder, law enforcement did determine that he was in his right mind while committing these murders. He was later tried on July 3rd, 1984 in Nebraska for the murders of Danny and Christopher, where he did end up pleading guilty and he did receive the death, death penalty. Good. 
Because he grew up in Portland, Maine, he started making headlines at home. And it was at this point that detectives in Maine had noticed a striking resemblance in Danny and Christopher's murder to a cold case that they had back from 1982. Wow. So, and this was the murder of 11-year-old Ricky Stinson. Mm-hmm. So they got hair samples and tooth impressions from John in February of 1985 to compare to what they had uh, from Ricky. And uh, on January 10th, 1986, John was indicted for the murder of Richard Stenson. He was tried in Maine for the murder of Ricky. And because he already had the death penalty, he was just sentenced to life in prison. Now, while on death row in Nebraska, because that's where he received the death penalty Mm -hmm. at, he read over law texts, read authors such as uh, Sigmund Freud, Ernest Hemingway's, people like that. Um, it was also at this time that he started drawing. So two of his drawings depicted scenes of violence that bore such a striking resemblance to the murders. Oh, my gosh. And there was um, there's a man named Mark, Mark Petit. And he has a book called A Need to Kill, The Death Row Drawings. He said that in 2014, he gave copies of those two drawings that uh, John had done. Mm-hmm. And he asked crime profilers to give their opinions on them. And their opinion was that the drawing suggested that he would find his previous murder, murderous impulses impossible to resist and would likely kill other kids if he was ever given the chance. Again, keep him in there. Yes. Until he's dead. But John insisted that he was a changed man. And he said that he even found his first love, who was a woman in Ireland, that had become his pen pal. I, I cannot understand prison pen pals. Oh, no, I just don't I get it. I can't either. I don't like, get it. I don't, I don't know why anyone would, in Ireland would want to pen pal someone here in the states no but i've got a real a name of a really good therapist for her so okay yes (laughs) if she is still alive let's let's let her know now a month before he was sentenced to death um he told the omaha world herald which was the same newspaper that little danny delivered he had an interview with them and he said it was the power and the domination and seeing the fear that was more exciting than actually causing the harm. And that is not a changed man. That is not <laughs> a changed man at all. So he was set to die in the electric chair on July 17th, 1996. And in his appeals, he argued that the electric chair is cruel and unusual punishment, which I kind of agree just because my mom watched a man be put to death uh, in the electric chair. And she said the images would haunt her forever. But at the same time, this man murdered and tortured young boys. Right. So it's right. nothing worse than what he did to them. Yes. And uh, that's just something that we have to keep in mind. And Captain Jeff David from the Sarfield County Sheriff's Department says, uh, says it better than I even can imagine to say it. When he told the Associated Press, no matter what they do to him, nothing is going to take away the horror and the terror that those children felt, let alone what their parents go through their all their lives. Mm-hmm. And Danny's mother, Judy said, Mr. Jubert deserves the death penalty, not out of vengeance, but because it is the only punishment that can make sure that he will never walk the streets again. I agree. Like this is so far beyond like a parent wanting to see justice. Like mm-hmm. he has straight up said it multiple times now that he's he never will do going it again. to stop. Yeah. 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 In 1990, he filed a writ of habeas corpus to the federal, the U.S. federal courts over the death sentences, and his attorneys argued that the aggravating factor of exceptional depravity was unconstitutionally vague. Thankfully, they overturned the appeal, saying that John had shown sadistic behavior by torturing both Danny and Christopher. Good. Pleas for his clemency made their way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But in the end, John was able to keep his date with the electric chair on July 17th, 1996. And in his final statement, he apologized for each of the murders and said, I do not know if my death will change anything or if it will bring anyone any peace. Bitch, it brings me peace. Yeah. Yep. 
But yeah, that is the story of John Joseph Jubert the Fourth. Um, I believe he was also known as the Woodland Strangler. Okay. Oh, that was heavy. That that was rough. But at the end of the day, the last few cases that I've given you guys are unsolved. Yeah. yeah. I and, know. Thank you for this one. <laughs> I'm where we have a nice guys... ending. Yeah. I mean, it's a good one. He died. He was not yeah. to death. Yeah, it's a good one. No, I'm I'm very content. I think our <laughs> listeners are too. <laughs> uh, do you have a missing person that we need to be looking for in Maine? I do. Okay. So this one is a little bit of an older one. This is going to be Colin J. Ari, A-R-E-Y. This case is back from 2017. So he was last seen in January 2017 when he was driven to the Brewer Auditorium in Brewer, Maine by his stepfather. He reportedly was going to begin a job, a new job in Bangor. And he since has not had any contact with his family or friends in Maine or New York where he once lived. His social media accounts have not been updated and he does not have a cell number to be contacted on. He's never had a driver's license and is not known to drive. He has... He may have a birthmark over his eye described as a strawberry. Hmm. So uh, if you have any information regarding him, you can contact the Main State Police Major Crimes Unit at 207-973-3750. I do not have his height, weight, anything like that. Um, he does have like dirty blonde hair. It's a little bit shaggy, covers his ears a little bit, a little bit of stubble. Um, I guess because he's never had a driver's license, that information isn't widely known. And maybe his parents didn't feel comfortable guessing. Yeah. All right. We're going to be on the lookout. Say his name one more time. Colin Ari. A-R-E-Y. All right. We're going to be looking for him in well from alabama but if you are local to maine make sure you um spread the word try to get him home 2017s it's been quite a few years but that doesn't mean that he's not out there so yep a little more than five years he's been missing yep all right everybody if you want to support us because we're awesome find us on patreon we are killer country podcast on patreon if you would like to message us on Facebook, connect with us, keep up with our pictures from our stories, you can contact us on Facebook at fate or you can get in contact with us on facebook.com backslash killer country podcast. We're also on Instagram for those case pictures that I promise will be updated soon. Um, if they're not actually, I'm saying now on this episode that they should have already been up and this current Kelsey is going to be really upset with past Kelsey if she didn't get it done. So find us on Instagram. See those pictures on Instagram at Killer Country Podcast. And if you would like to send us case recommendations, uh, campfire stories, if there's anything that you would like us to cover, touch on, talk on, anything like that. If you have a cool middle name starting with an A, <laughs> let me know. Currently uh, searching. <laughs> yes, currently searching at killercountrypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> All right, everybody. We are out of Maine and on to Maryland and Massachusetts after that. So just stick into the East Coast. Yes. We will see you guys soon. Bye, guys. Bye.